Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 45, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, released earlier this year. It's, by the way, a book about pain and struggle and challenge, and where is Jesus in the midst of all those things? And the book explores a very surprising answer to that question. So that's The God Who Fights For You. In the year before that, it was the book Spiritual Grit, along with two companion devotions, a one for adults and one for teenagers. And a few years before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, sort of the bottom of the pyramid of this uh, podcast here, the foundation for it. And, and in fact, the series that we're in the middle of right now, The Beeline Practices, is drawn directly from The Jesus-Centered Life. We'll talk more about that in just a second. And I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which a uh, much-beloved Bible that still, after four years, four years after we published it, is still going strong. And by the way, as I've mentioned before, a perfect gift for Christmas. Uh, in fact, I can't think of a better gift than to give someone the gift of a Jesus-Centered Bible. It's not the sort of Bible you stick on your shelf or leave out because uh, you want people to know that you're a Bible-reading home. It's not that sort of Bible. It's the sort of Bible that gets worn out. So when people buy this Bible, they uh, end up um, in it every day. It just has a magnetic impact. The, the additional features we put in this Bible help to draw you into a closer orbit around Jesus, and that, in turn, um, kind of just whets your appetite for more. So uh, if you're thinking about Christmas gifts already, and we are heading into gift-giving season, we've, we've kind of put together a, a menu of of Jesus-centered treasures, uh, things that are perfect for giving at Christmas time, including the Jesus-centered Bible, but also the Jesus-centered planner, which I've mentioned over the last month uh, was just released and will sell out soon. So if you want one, now's the time to get one, the Jesus-centered planner. It's the truth in advertising there. It's a, it's a daily planner that helps you to also focus on Jesus in an everyday, normal way. So it's full of special things in there that will draw you to Jesus every day. There's also the, the Jesus-Centered Life devotion book that maybe many of you haven't heard about because it says 40 devotions for teenagers on the front of it. It's just this little book. It was created with two of my friends, Kurt Johnston and Jeff Storm, to particularly target teenagers, but many, many adults have picked up that little devotion and they love it. So I would highly recommend it if you have a young person in your life or if you just want to give a highly interactive, creative devotion about Jesus to someone. It's called the Jesus-Centered Life, 40 Devotions for Teenagers. And we have a, a devotion that is full-on focused for adults called Centering Your Life on Jesus. And believe it or not, we have some Jesus-centered coloring books that are quite creative in the way that you interact with them. So all of those things you can find links to on the episode page for this episode. So you go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com and you look for Season 4, Episode 45, and you'll find all these links there. Or you can just go to Group.com, and you'll find all of these things there in our online store. So today is the 12th episode 
in this series I mentioned before called the Beeline Practices, and those are simply ways of approaching our life and our relationship with Jesus that just naturally draw us closer and closer into His orbit so that we get magnetized by Him is the best way to say it. And when that happens, we experience transformation and growth. Just getting close to Jesus is what produces growth in us. So the Beeline Practices are ways of living your life that aren't disciplines necessarily. They're just sort of experiments on the playground. Uh, That's how I like to refer to them. So in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of experiencing more and automating less. Or another way of saying that is to live a life no longer on autopilot. (laughs) So in the Jesus-centered life, I tell one of my favorite stories uh, about this, about experiencing more, automating less, Um, uh, uh, probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago, researchers at Volkswagen, I'm not sure exactly why they were doing this, but uh, Volkswagen is the the business that funded this research. They were trying to find ways to help people in Sweden get more fit. And uh, the Swedish government had tried various kind of methods, most of them what you might call trying to inform and should people into greater fitness habits, meaning here's what you should do uh, based on this information. And as you'd expect, those efforts uh, did not gain a lot of traction, and because we don't like to be shooted into things we know we're supposed to do but aren't going to do anyway because it's too much work. So these researchers with Volkswagen were exploring new ways, creative ways, to um, invite and entice people into a more fit lifestyle. And so they decided to focus on the Odenplan subway station in Sweden, and that subway station had an escalator and a large, wide set of stairs up out of the subway station onto the street, and they noticed that almost everyone took the escalator. So they'd step on the escalator and just stand there while it took them up to the street. Very few people took the stairs, and if they did take the stairs every day, that would help their fitness level. Well, they concocted this very creative idea. Overnight, while the subway station was closed, they turned that set of stairs into a massive set of piano keys, you know, black and white piano keys. Every other one was either black or white. And these steps then actually played notes, and then they installed cameras uh, around the stairs to see what the impact of them turning the staircase into a big piano would do the next morning. So the next morning, everyone files into the subway station just as they normally do, and then they, you know, they're confronted by this staircase that looks radically different, and they start stepping on the keys, and then an incredible thing happens. More and more people see what these stairs are, and they and they start taking the stairs. They start actually creating songs on the staircase using those notes, and the VW researchers documented that that staircase traffic then grew massively. In fact, they created 66% more staircase traffic than normal. And the reason why was that people chose to walk the stairs. They didn't feel like it was something they were supposed to do. The adventure of it, the experience aspect of those stairs caused them to want to go on the stairs more. And they, so more people were getting fit without being shooted into it. So in this, the reason I love this story so much is it's, it's so perfectly uh, a parable. So the escalator in this story is an automated way to climb stairs, but the piano keys 
on the staircase created an active experience of climbing that was fun, that people enjoyed. So they didn't have to be prodded into it. They, they were drawn to climbing those stairs, and they didn't realize it. Oh, no, they were getting fit <laughs> because they were climbing the stairs more. So what does automating our relationship with Jesus really look like? If you think about the parable I just told, well, what would the escalator in our relationship with Jesus look like? Well, essentially, it replaces doing things with talking about things, meaning instead of doing things in our relationship with Jesus, actually experiencing Him, we instead talk about things in our relationship with Jesus. It's If you can think about it this way, it's why our church services are structured the way they are. In almost every church, what you see is one a quote-unquote great communicator, talking up front while everyone else listens. There's one person who's on an adventure in the room, and the rest of us are just documenting the adventure or vicariously experiencing the adventure. But we're not actually in the adventure. We're not the ones exploring. We're just listening to the person who is. It's like uh, Lucy Pevensey in the Chronicles of Narnia going through the wardrobe door into the land of Narnia and instead of her brothers and sisters following her into this uh, magical, fantastical world, she just yells through the coat rack back to them and tells them what she's seen. So they don't experience it themselves, they're just listening to someone else who is. So words, words are safe, by the way. So we, we gravitate to words or talking about things instead of doing things the same way that we read a, about a character in a book. So we might be mesmerized by that character, but there's really no danger in the relationship we have with that character. There's no agency in that relationship. That person is safe, locked behind the words on the page, and we're in complete control of the relationship, and that person can't reach out, that character can't reach out of the page and somehow challenge us or upend us. Um, That's not possible. We're in control of the relationship. So there's no danger to us. So we might be mesmerized by that character, of course, but actually there's, there's no real danger in it. So you can only get that kind of experiential uh, impact when you are in relationship with a person, not a character. So it's the relationships that change us. It's not the concepts that we love that change us. It's always a relationship that changes us, but... Relationships are messy, and they involve pain. So this is why we are tempted to take the escalator. Let's just lose ourselves in talking about Jesus instead of actually experiencing him, because that's far less messy, confusing, and painful. Let's just go on autopilot. And this sense of going on autopilot is more pervasive than you might realize. I had a kind of a visceral experience of this early on in our marriage, and I write about this in The Jesus-Centered Life. Um, Early on, because I've been a writer for a long time, um, and during the time that I was dating Bev, um, I often wrote her these, you know, carefully crafted, (laughs) creative notes that were, you know, romantic and and, uh, very specific and... um, written sort of poetically, usually, or at least what I thought was poetic. And that was one of the things that she really loved about me as we were dating. She loved my ability to use words in our relationship, to have a great conversation, and she loved how I would sometimes describe 
um, who she is. And so uh, early on in our marriage, when it was her birthday or a special occasion or Christmas or Easter or whatever, if I was going to get her a card to give to her, I wrote really long notes to her that were full of specific things and poetic language. There were these just long descriptive sentiments that, that I wrote. And early on, she liked all of that, except the more we, we sort of immersed ourselves in marriage, the less satisfied she was with these cards. So she liked all those words, except they were sometimes not congruent with her actual experience of me, meaning uh, I, I might talk about vulnerability in a card, but not actually be vulnerable with her sometimes. And so she started getting a little bit, I don't know if cynical is the right word, but a little bit tired of hearing all of my words and not ha having them sort of match her experience of me at the time. And so I was really just treating my words as if they were actually me. And my words aren't me. They just represent my thoughts and feelings and emotions. Um, so the words aren't really me. They're just representative of me. And what she was getting tired of is the representation of me didn't coincide with the experience of me. And she wanted more. She wanted more than my words. And thank God that she did. Um, because words represent safety. And what she was really doing is calling me out of my safety. I thought that I could use my words and it would be the same thing as risking in my relationship with her. But I had no idea what real risk would look like in my relationship with her. I was using my words as a safety mechanism to keep myself from the danger of risk in our relationship. And because she got tired of that over time, I was forced out of my safety zone, and that was a really good thing. So there's other ways that we automate our relationship with Jesus. Let me give you a few examples to kind of help you get your head around this. When we're automating our relationship with Jesus, we study the Bible more than we live the model of Jesus. So we retreat to the safety of simply studying the Bible instead of having that lead to a lifestyle of modeling the way Jesus lived, or a lifestyle of dependence in our relationship with Jesus, it's safe to study the Bible and to um, pick it apart and to understand its meaning, but it's quite unsafe to relate to a real Jesus, to a real person. So when we automate our relationship with Jesus, now the way you might see this uh, come out, and I've seen it uh, many, many times in ways that I lead people into things, they're fine, when I'm leading a group of people into some pursuit of Jesus, they're fine and comfortable um, as long as what we're doing is exploring words on a page. When it translates to actually experiencing Jesus in some way, risking to experience him, then the room is full of discomfort and stress and anxiety because that's not safe any longer. What, what might happen here? So uh, when we study the Bible more than we live out um, our relationship with Jesus— we are automating that relationship. Or, here's another example, um, when we decide to, to give our money rather than our time as an act of worship and service to Jesus. It's not that there's anything wrong with giving money, because the money represents our life, but it's easy to play it safe by simply giving money rather than yourself. And 
yourself is actually the real treasure, that your money represents you. So you could say that it represents treasure, but your time really represents the greatest treasure you have to give. There's nothing more valuable you have than your time. But that means getting personally involved in things. And when you give money instead of yourself, uh, it's, it's a way of automating our relationship with Jesus because it keeps us in this safe, automated place where there's no danger, again, to use that word. Or uh, here's another example. When we let other Christian leaders chew on things and then regurgitate what they've discovered to us. So it's nothing. there's nothing wrong about um, listening to other Christian leaders or even listening to me right now. I'm, I'm chewing on things, and I'm regurgitating to you. But when we leave it at that, then we're automating our relationship with Jesus. We're letting someone else chew. And it's in the chewing that we draw near to Jesus. So if we're not chewing in our own life, then, then we'll, we will have a hard time drawing near to Jesus, because it's that chewing aspect of our relationship with Him that really draws us near to Him and helps us to abide in Him. So if you're letting uh, other Christian leaders simply chew and regurgitate stuff to you, and you never do that yourself, you're automating your relationship with Jesus. Or, here's another example, um, when you're praying, either for yourself or others, and you turn that prayer into some kind of performance, or you preach when you pray, or you simply brainstorm your requests based on what you think you know about the person's needs, but you never ask Jesus first how to pray, or what is on his heart for the person, or how he would like you to proceed with prayer first. Um, if, you, if you do the other, which is very conventional, that's automating your relationship with Jesus. It requires no dependence or risk um, in pursuing Jesus first. It requires no relationship with him, really. Um, you're just simply brainstorming out of what you know, or you're preaching at someone in the guise of prayer. So that's automating our relationship with Jesus. Here's a, one last example. When we look for, in Scripture in particular, when we look for sort of Christian growth formulas, rather than looking for intimacy with Jesus, when we're looking for formulas to follow or recipes to follow, that if we just follow them, they will give us our desired outcome, that is a subtle way of um, shifting our focus and attention from a relationship with God to working the system. So there's a fantastic example of what this looks like in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I um, thought I would just read this section to you because it's such a profound and heartbreaking scene in the whole narrative of the people of God. So this is from 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse uh, 10. Here we go. So Samuel passed on to the Lord's to, uh, passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. So he's saying the king is going to draft your sons into the army, and you won't have any choice about it. And then he goes on, he said, some, some will be generals and captains in his army, but some will be forced to plow his fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. So he's saying, yeah, maybe some of them will get kind of plum jobs um, with the king, but some are just going to do grunt work, and they won't have any choice about it. Then he says, the king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. 
He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it amongst his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He'll demand a tenth of your flocks and you'll be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. Well, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So here's the heartbreaking part. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, Samuel, do as they say and give him a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. I preface this by saying I think this is an example in a subtle way of what we also do today. We basically say uh, our, the king that we want is the formula or recipe that we can plug in and follow that instead of following Jesus. And the heartbreaking response you see here God give is he's, he basically says, give them what they want. I'm not going to fight them about this. If they don't want me, I'm not going to force them to want me. That's what he's saying. And Jesus says the same thing to us. If we would prefer to follow formulas and recipes, he's not going to force us not to, but there's no relationship there. It's empty. And what he prefers, what he wants, is to be in close intimacy with us. He wants to be um, in intimate friendship with us, a love relationship. So uh, instead, when we translate what we read in Scripture into formulas— we uh, send them through the First Samuel 8 filter. We're asking for a human king, but not Jesus himself. So, so what, does, what does not automating look like then? What, what does it mean to experience Jesus, to, to um, not uh, sort of uh, float our way through our relationship with him, um, to not go on autopilot? What does that look like. So I heard a NPR report on uh, changes happening in education today. It was a report on uh, something near and dear to my heart, experiential learning, and how experiential lear- experience-based learning is becoming more and more popular in good schools, and they're learning how to do it better. And this is one of the things I've sort of given the last 30 years of my life to, which is to experiment and innovate in how to lead people in experiential and interactive ways. So my ears perked up when I heard this report on NPR about um, new uh, innovations in experiential learning. And so this report was by an education reporter named Jenny Brundine. And here's what she says in the middle of her report that just really caught my ear. She says, so what's going on in classrooms? Lots of talk about facts and procedures, and students mostly just listen. They don't get their hands on things, or they're often not required to figure out things on their own. The key is to get kids to think critically and invent using real-world examples. So dissecting a frog or mixing chemicals in a beaker is not enough. Research shows that these lab exercises are more like following a recipe than discovering scientific principles. Students who discover the answers will remember them much better than if a teacher told them in a lecture. That last statement, students who discover discover the answers, 
will remember them much better than if a teacher told them in a lecture. And this is essentially the ethic of how I lead uh, my weekly Tuesday night group in my home with about 20 young people. This is what we live by, that I want to always push discovery off on them instead of me being the one discovering and then regurgitating what I've discovered to them. So the whole feeling of that evening is the young people being the ones in charge of discovery, and then I interact with what they discover. That's essentially what we do through experiences and interactions and questions and reacting to video segments. And the whole idea is to push discovery off from me onto onto them. And that's what's called getting your hands dirty. That's getting involved experientially in the process instead of being a passive consumer of it. So what are some examples of Jesus helping his disciples get their hands dirty? What, what, what can we um, kind of focus on in, in how Jesus did this? So this is one of those things where if you use this as a lens to read about Jesus, you'll find out that quickly that he almost always was trying to entice the people he was engaging to get their hands dirty, to experience something, not just hear about it, to get involved in something, not just stand on the sidelines. So let's talk about a few examples. Um, well, a couple of with with Peter, one early on, one later. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus uh, is walking through the night on a stormy sea, and he's walking near enough to the boat that his disciples are on that they can see him and they think he's a ghost. Uh, they're at, in the middle of the night, uh, it's a stormy sea, they're frightened, um, and then to add to their fear, uh, walking past them looks like this ghost. But it's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And um, Peter is looking out there trying to make sure that he, you know, his eyes aren't fooling him, and he says, Jesus, if it's, if it's really you, ask me to come over the side of the boat and walk on the water toward you. And Jesus says, it is me, come. And so Peter starts to walk. So, so here Jesus could have simply um, climbed into the boat after walking across the water and taught his disciples about risk and faith. He could have uh, been poetic, like I was poetic in my cards to my wife, could have waxed poetic about the beauty of faith and and how uh, courageous risk-taking is in a relationship with God. Instead, what he did is he invites Peter to step out of the boat and onto the water. He wanted Peter to have the experience, the, the, the sense of, of danger, and Peter for sure sensed the danger because he started to drown. <laughs> and he said, help me, help me, Jesus. So you can, you can believe that Peter never, for the rest of his life, forgot about that experience. But he easily could have forgotten um, a teaching on the boat about faith that Jesus gave. Instead, Jesus invited him into an experience, not a study. <laughs> and then later on, uh, at the end of the, John's Gospel in John 21, when Jesus is resurrected and on the beach, and disciples come in from fishing all night and catching nothing, to a full net of fish that Jesus directs them to, to catch— they come into the beach to have a breakfast of fish with Jesus, and of course, Peter has a, this uh, sort of tipping point conversation with Jesus, and Jesus three times asks Peter if he loves him, and three times Peter says yes, 
more, more hurtfully each time, and Jesus responds each time with the same directive to Peter, feed my sheep. So think about this. He could have said to Peter, three times I forgive you for betraying me because you betrayed me three times. I forgive you three times. That's what I'm doing, Peter. I'm going to forgive you. And he could have said, now I want you to uh, you know, lead the ministry that I'm leaving behind for you. But instead, he uses this vigorous language, feed my sheep. He's saying, Peter, the life that I'm asking you to live from this point forward is not a life of studying things and leaving it at that. It's not a life of talking about things and leaving it at that. It's a life of doing things. To feed a sheep, you have to do something. You have to fill their belly with something. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to get your hands dirty, Peter. I don't want you to stay safe. I want you to be close enough to the sheep to feed them. And I want you to personally find the food that they need and make sure that their bellies are full. Feed my sheep. Let's move to another example. Uh, In Matthew 19, we have this iconic story where this rich young man asks Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus first asks him, well, what do you think you have to do? And the man repeats, you know, all of the things that a good young Jewish man is supposed to know, and then he concludes with that long list of things by saying, and I've done all these things. I've kept the law. I've, I've done it all. And you can sense that he's pretty confident, pretty self-confident that he's completed everything he needs to do. And so Jesus could have debated him, could have picked apart his argument, could have taken him to Scripture and said, let's talk about it then. How, how is that possible? Instead, what he does is he says, okay, if you've done those things, then the next thing you need to do is sell everything you have, give all that money to the poor, and come follow me. Another way of saying that is, come experience me. Yes, 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 you've stayed in the safety of the sidelines, and you've observed the law, and have tried your best to keep the law, but that's not a relationship. What do you have to do to inherit eternal life? You need to be in relationship with me. So I'm offering you the chance to be in relationship with me, to put all that life behind you, and enter into relationship with me to experience me. And, of course, the young man walks away because he's quite rich, and what Jesus is asking him to do is just too much. But in the end, what the young man is rejecting is a an immersive relationship with Jesus in favor of ticking off the checkboxes in his religious persona. Uh, he prefers to follow the rules and formulas that are set up by the Old Testament law and by the Pharisees than to being in a wild, unpredictable relationship with Jesus where your, your, um, your status and your sustenance is all dependent on your connection to Jesus, not the wealth you've amassed or the, the checkboxes on your religious checkbox that you've already ticked off. So, so there's another example. And then let's move to Luke 11 where um, I think I'm going to actually read this one. This one is a a fun one. This is from Luke 11, and this is where um, Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee. And it's one of those unusual stories that you'd have to say it'd be hard to create the fictional character of Jesus. 
because he would never write this story. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, it, this is one of those where the, the unique and distinct personality of Jesus comes shining through. So this is in Luke 11, starting in verse 37, and here's how, here's how it goes. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Well, then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools! Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you'll be clean all over. And that's just the on-ramp into (laughs) more of the same for a couple more paragraphs. He's just going after the Pharisees and telling them what sorrow awaits them because of their ridiculous and hypocritical practices in life. And then the host, who'd graciously invited Jesus to the meal, to his home for a meal, kind of interjects, he must have been been just uh, mortified by what was happening here, because this, the guest that he invites is now just excoriating these religious leaders in his home. It's embarrassing, and it's shameful, and it's incredibly upsetting. And so he interjects and says, Teacher, um, you know, you've insulted us too in what you've just said. And Jesus says, <laughs> this is so good, he says, Yes, what sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law. And then he just launches back into a new set of sorrows that await them. So uh, here, here he is. He's a guest at a, at a guest of honor at a dinner at the home of a Pharisee. But what we often forget is that the Pharisees were his enemies. They had already com- communicated over and over again. They were trying to trap him so that they could take him out. There was already at play here a murderous conspiracy against him, and he's invited to one of their homes to eat a meal surrounded by his enemies. So when Jesus says, you know, anyone can love the people you love, um, the God kind of love is the kind of love that loves enemies. That's what kind of love that is. He doesn't just teach that, like in a parable or in a in, in sort of a wise saying. He goes to dinner at the home of enemies, and when he's there at the home of enemies, he loves them. Now, this, the, what he's saying to them might not seem like love, but when you're locked in hypocrisy and you don't see how lost you are, you need to be shaken up um, to have any hope, and that's what he does. So Jesus doesn't complain about his enemies in the safe company of his friends, and that's pretty much what we do, isn't it? If we have someone who really bothers us, um, we, we avoid saying anything directly to the person because that would be too upsetting. Instead, we go to talk to people who we think are safe so that we can complain about the third party um, without any danger of getting involved experientially in engaging that person. So we would rather complain about our enemies in the safe company of our friends. Jesus is the opposite of that. He would rather go have a meal with them (laughs) and then engage them based on how they interact with him. Because why? He wants them to be transformed. He's not content for them to stay uh, buried in their hypocrisy, which is going to lead to their death in the end. 
He will not put up with that if he can help it. Then the last one, just take a look at, and just maybe flip back over here to Luke chapter 10, which is um, when Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha to visit them. And of course, we know this story. It's so, it's, it's so iconic that Martha, as a archetype, is just distinct for us because she's the one scurrying around, making preparations for their unexpected guest, wanting to make sure that, that everything's just right and that she's a good hostess and she has all the food she needs and she's under tremendous pressure to fulfill her own internal expectations about what a good host does. Meanwhile, her, her sister Mary is just sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And, it, you know, you can imagine the frustration just boiling over in Martha. Um, but again, Jesus here is trying to engage Martha and, tell, and to try to um, keep her from living an automated relationship with him. Because the easiest, safest thing to do would be to do all the preparations you need to do to be a good hostess while never actually engaging personally with Jesus, and that's what Mary's doing. So here's what Jesus says to Martha. My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all of these details. There's really only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary's discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So if you, you know, we can translate what he's saying here into the language of the theme of this, of this episode. He's saying, Martha, you're on autopilot. It's a lot easier and safer to make sure the scones are baked right <laughs> and that you have the right kind of figs and that um, you have enough wine for us uh, for this evening to take care of all the hostessing details. That's all nice and genuine, but it's also safe, and I'm inviting in you into a relationship that isn't safe, and I'm not going to take that away from Mary. She is risking and, and the courage to, to relate to me, to engage me, and I'm not going to take that away from her, and I wish you would do the same. Your, your preparations don't mean that much to me, but your heart does. I want you to come out of your safety zone and begin to engage me, to connect with me, to develop an intimacy with me. Um, so... I, as I said before, you could pretty much plop your finger down anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with someone, and you'll find him trying to move them away from autopilot, move them away from an automated relationship to an experiential relationship where they, where they have risk involved. They have some skin in the game in their relationship with him. He is always doing this. He wants to move us off the escalator and onto the piano stairs. <laughs> and he wants to do it not by sort of threatening us or shooting us into it. He, he wants to playfully invite us onto those piano keys so that we will get the fitness we need without him forcing us to get it. He wants to attract us, to invite us into intimacy with him, into experiencing him. He does not want to force us into that. So, how do we sort of get our hands on Jesus, to use Jenny Brundine's little uh, description of what experiential learning really looks like? Here's what she says again, just as a reminder. She's criticizing uh, or critiquing the traditional form of education when she says, the kids don't get their hands on things, or they're often not required to figure out things on their own. So that's uh, what Jenny Brundine was observing about traditional educational practices. So 
how do we get our hands on Jesus, where we are relating to him experientially and figuring things out on our own and thinking critically in our relationship with him and reasoning out things together with him? Well, just to, to close off here, here's a few ways. I've already suggested one way is to change the way we pray. Instead of automating your prayers, where all the control is on your side and you're either, either preaching or brainstorming, we, you simply pause first and ask Jesus for guidance on how to pray, and you don't start praying until you do. You get some leading, some glimmer, some picture, word, something, and then you pray. And that little change can make a huge difference in your relationship, but it introduces the whole experience of engaging Jesus first. You make prayer experiential with him instead of simply a automated process where you just take the escalator up the stairs. Instead, this is a dependent form of prayer that requires you that you get on the stairs and play a little music with him. Another way is to challenge yourself, if you're a word person like me, to express your love wordlessly, meaning make your actions and your the experience of your love the important thing, not the way you describe it. So I, you know, one of the things that I just hate in the greeting card aisle, especially for greeting cards that are designed for men to buy for their wives or their girlfriends, I hate the, the genre of card, and it's a huge genre in the male greeting card arena. I hate the genre of card that starts off with, I know I don't say it enough, but that, I just have to say, guys, if you're listening, that is a cop-out. If you are not living out your love with your wife or your girlfriend, and you are not voicing your love for her, then repent. <laughs> Ask forgiveness for that. But don't give them a greeting card that says, I, don't, I know I don't say this enough, but if you're aware that you don't say it enough, then that's a light on your soul, isn't it? Why? What, what am, why am I playing it safe in my relationship? Men whose wives don't know whether they love them or not are playing it safe. And safety does not lead to intimacy in relationship. And the reason why your wife is unhappy is that she wants more intimacy in her relationship with you. So don't be the kind of guy who could pick up a card that says, I know I don't say it often enough. Be the kind of guy that can say when you see a card like that, yes, I do, or in my own messy, broken way, I am trying to love my wife, and she knows that I am, because I'm, I'm involved experientially with my wife. And you could make the same—you uh, won't find, <laughs> by the way, cards like that for women— there aren't any cards for women that say, um, husband, I know I don't say it enough, but <laughs> they just don't exist. So there, uh, there are ways that women um, move in relationship experientially that men have a lot to learn from. Women um, are much more drawn to experiences of intimacy than words of intimacy. So um, if you're a word person, like I am and have been, Challenge yourself to wordlessly love, and what would that look like? Another way to challenge yourself is in the way you make decisions, and I mean decisions about anything, everything, little things. The example I usually give is, um, and people kind of scoff at this, but if you're driving and you're late to an appointment and you need a parking spot, it seems shallow to pray for a parking spot, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, that's a first-world problem. 
But I say, any decision you have or any need you have, why wouldn't we share that with Jesus? If it matters to us, then it matters to him. So if I'm running late and I need a parking spot, I will say out loud, Jesus, please help me find a parking spot. Or Jesus, what should I do in this situation? And not all of it's spoken out loud, obviously, but if we get in the habit of whenever we face a decision or a challenge, that we turn to him, even in the subtlest microsecond sort of way, we turn to him and invite him into that decision or challenge, all we're doing is saying, please come in. Jesus responds to invitation. He does not force his way through our door. So all we're doing is saying, please come into this, Jesus. And Jesus responds to invitation. So we expand the number of situations where we invite him in. That's getting our hands on Jesus. That's experiencing him, not automating him. Kissing cousin to that one is the way we face challenges. Any challenge in your life, are you inviting him to help you? Are you inviting him to guide you in the midst of the challenge? Are you inviting him to uh, resource you with his strength and courage when you face those challenges? Or are you just muscling through? Are you grinding it through? To experience Jesus, to walk the stairs instead of the escalator, means to invite him into your challenges and ask for his help. Or another way is the way you interact with others. Uh, This is a challenging one for me. When you're in a social gathering, do you ever first go to Jesus and say, who would you like me to connect with here? And in what way? do You see more than I do, Jesus. In what way do you want me to interact with that person? Now, this is going to feel formal at the start, but after you've done this for a bit, it will just seem like breathing to you. When you walk into a room and you you shoot up a microsecond of a plea to Jesus, who do you want me to interact with here? Who do you want to draw me to here today, and how do you want me to engage that person? That way, your interactions then become charged with meaning instead of just time fillers. And then the last way is to seek him out in the way that we help and serve others, meaning, go back to Martha's example, Martha was on autopilot. She thought that the thing that had to be done was prepare all of the the food and uh, other hosting duties that she thought needed to happen, and she didn't really pay attention to what Jesus really wanted. Mary was paying attention to what Jesus really wanted. So what would it look like when we help and serve others that we first connect with Jesus about how to help and how to serve, that we're taking the risk to experience him guiding us into that health and service instead of us just defaulting to whatever we think we're supposed to do. The idea here is always, and put this uh, picture in your head, to, to always take the stairs instead of the escalator. And by the way, we'll put a link to that scene I told you about with those piano stairs and the escalator. It's actually a long commercial created by Volkswagen, so we'll put a link to that on our Uh, site, and you can see for yourself what this looks like, and then you'll have a picture of what this looks like in your head of the difference between automating and engaging in your relationship, the difference between experiencing Jesus and going on autopilot with him. So we'll we'll put that on our website, and that's at painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, and you'll be looking for Season 4, Episode 45. And that's it, gang. Thanks for listening, Um, and remember to check out those potential Christmas gifts, the Jesus-Centered Planner, the Bible, the little Jesus-Centered Life devotional, the coloring books, and Centering Your Life on Jesus, the devotional for adults, all those perfect for giving gifts. We'll have a link to those on our site. 
can also go to group.com to check those out. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 